Okay, we'll turn over to Galatians chapter 3. We'll be in 19 through 22 this morning. Galatians 3, 19 through 22. And uh, this morning I uh, was reading in the Valley of Vision, the book of Puritan Prayers, and I came across this one called uh, Scriptural Convictions, and I thought it would be really fitting for the pastoral prayer. So this morning we'll pray um, using that before we go to God's Word. So you would pray with me. O God of love, I approach Thee with encouragements derived from Thy character. For I am not left to feel after Thee in the darkness of my own nature, nor to worship Thee as the unknown God. I cannot find out Thy perfections, but I know Thou art good, ready to forgive, plenteous in mercy. Thou hast displayed wisdom, power, and goodness in all Thy works, and hast revealed Thy will in the scripture of truth. Thou hast caused it to be preserved, translated, published, multiplied, so that all men may possess it and find thee in it. Here I see thy greatness and thy grace, thy pity and thy rectitude, thy mercy and thy truth, thy being and men's hearts. Through it thou hast magnified thy name and favored mankind with the gospel. Have mercy on me, for I have ungratefully received thy benefits, little improved my privileges, made light of spiritual things, disregarded thy messages, contended with examples of the good, rebukes of conscience, admonitions of friends, leadings of providence. I deserve that thy kingdom be taken away from me. Lord, I confess my sin with feeling, lamentation, a broken heart, a contrite spirit, self-abhorrence, self-condemnation, self-despair. Give me relief by Jesus, my hope, faith in His name of Savior, forgiveness by His blood, strength by His presence, holiness by His Spirit, and let me love Thee with all my heart. Amen. All right, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Galatians uh, chapter 3. Verses 19 through 22. The Apostle Paul, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offering should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. We have a natural tendency as human beings to look inward, to look toward ourselves. And of course, God would have us turn uh, away from ourselves and toward himself. When God brought the people out of the land of Egypt in the Exodus, um, and when he did, they came to the promised land and they saw uh, these great big people and great big walls. And they said, well, let's, let's elect a new leader and go back to Egypt. 
I mean, can, can you imagine that? that? God had brought them through the wilderness. He'd brought them out of the land of Egypt in divine strength. He'd showed them their pow- His power over and over again. And He was indeed fulfilling His promise to Abraham through them. And they didn't believe the, the promise. Instead, they thought it would be better to turn back and to become slaves again. That, that's foolishness. We would never do that, would we? But we do. We consistently turn toward our own law-keeping. And Paul, in Galatians 5.1, calls it submitting again to a yoke of slavery. He said, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Don't go back again to Egypt. Paul in Galatians is on a quest to convince the people of Galatians to not foolishly go back into slavery, the imprisonment under the law, but to know the freedom and the life found in the promises of God and in their fulfillment in Jesus. And that's a worthy quest and one we really need to embark on on a daily basis. To turn from our law-based favor-earning to promise-based grace-receiving. So I pray each person here is, is utterly persuaded by our brother Paul and our father in the faith that God's promises are, are not contingent on, on our obedience to the law, but they have been given to us in Christ. They are ours by faith and not by works. As I, I mentioned last week, that this section of Scripture is weighty and it's doctrinal. And that the sermons that proceed from these texts will reflect that. Um, again, they're, they're thinking cap passages. They're not for people looking for a, a quick fix or a spiritual pep pill. But uh, doctrinal, uh, biblical doctrine really is the best cure for what ails us. So again, the format of this message will be really the same as last week. I'll try to give you a brief summary of my understanding of the passage, and then we will go through more slowly, verse by verse, and expose um, the meaning of, of the passage. And then at the end, we'll hit on some points of, of doctrine and application. So to, to begin by summarizing the passage in just a few paragraphs here, the context is that Paul here is continuing to show that salvation is by faith in Christ apart from works of the law. As we saw last week in in 15 through 18, that the principle of inheritance by works is, is contradictory to the principle of inheritance by faith. Promises given by God will be fulfilled, and we can't thwart that promise or that grace, and we can't earn that grace. They're promises, and He will fulfill them. A promise is a promise. And all of his promises find their yes and amen in Christ. And last week I pointed out that earning the promise by works was never even an option. Which to us maybe seems natural, but think about an early first century Jewish audience. Inheriting the promise by works is not even an option. That's offensive We can kind of sympathize, I think, a little bit with the Judaizers and what they were trying to wrestle with here. That They had been raised in this belief that law-keeping was the means by which you could merit God's favor. And here Paul's saying, no, it's by promise and by grace alone. 
promises are not inherited by law, but by grace. So we can understand why the, the gears of the Judaizers were slipping a little bit here. And Paul, who had argued with many, many Jews, um, predicts their objection here. He says, that, he says, well, why the law then? If the law can't be obtained, uh, by, or promises can't be obtained by law, why the law? Why at all? Why did God give it? And Paul basically responds, your, your base assumption about the purpose of the law is wrong. He says the reason the law was added was because of transgression. Meaning, like in Romans 5, the law increases transgression. It makes sin worse, not better. And not only that, but he says that the reign of the Sinai covenant was not meant to last forever. He says in verse 19 that it lasts until the offspring, that is singular, Christ, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So the law was always looking back at the promise made to Abraham and it was always looking forward to its fulfillment in Christ. In verse 19 and 20, he explains that the covenant made with Moses or with Israel was really a more contractual and uh, conditional covenant. The Abrahamic covenant was pure promise, pure grace, but Moses played the part of an intermediary, which implies more than one party. That is, more than one covenanting party. He has to be a go-between between two parties. And both of those parties had covenant stipulations and expectations placed upon them. So the Mosaic Covenant was more uh, contractual and conditional. Then verse 21, again he predicts the, the question, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Is God con- contradicting himself between Abraham and Moses? And he says, certainly not. His response is basically, law and promise serve different purposes. The law was intended, if the law was t- intended to give life, like the, the false teachers were saying, like the Judaizers were saying, then yes, they would conflict, but they don't because they serve different purposes. Then in God's plan of redemption, the law consigns all to sin in verse 22. And and the purpose of that is to drive us to our need for Christ. The, The universal sinfulness of humanity makes Christ through faith the only option of obtaining the promise. So really, I think Paul's main point in these verses is to show the purpose of the law is not Contrary to promise, it actually serves the promise. Um, Its function in redemptive history is to increase sin, to show the glory and the need for Christ. That is the purpose of the law. So that's just a basic summary, and I realize that's like turning on the fire hose. So we're going to slow down and... Go through more verse by verse here and try to wrap our minds around this. And this is a challenging section of, of Scripture, but it is um, really a foundational section of Scripture as well. 
So verse 19, why then the law? And he says, it was added because of transgressions. Um, I was chatting with a more synergistic friend of mine who had only recently heard about the existence of monergistic doctrines or the idea that, that God saves us, that God chooses us, we don't choose him. He'd only really just heard of this notion and, and he said to me, well, if, if we don't choose God, what's the point? In other words, we're under some kind of a test and if we do the right thing, we pass and if we don't, we fail. And really, this is a question that the souls of men have always had to wrestle with um, and it's not the, the the thing we wrestle with is is not the purpose of the law that we would know how to live before God and and be pleasing and righteous before Him. And the answer to that question is yes, that is the purpose. But the problem comes with the assumption, like like Pelagius, therefore we must have the ability to keep the law. Right? No. And if we keep it, we get a reward. Right? No. Well, why the law then? You can see the conundrum of the Jewish people. Paul explains it was actually added not as a means of obtaining righteousness before God, but because of transgressions. Very straightforward response, because of transgressions, but it's kind of vague. Tom Schreiner gives four ways um, that has, this, this phrase has been generally understood. The first is it was given to restrain sin, and the law was given to restrain sin. Um, it stri- restrains sin through the threat of punishment. Second, it, it was given to define sin. It does that as well. Romans 4.15, for the law brings wrath, but with, where there is no law, there is no transgression. And so the law defines the things that are sinful. The third is that it was given to deal with sin, um, that, that the sacrificial system in some manner atoned for sin, um, and it did not do that. And then the fourth is that it was given to increase sin, as we see in Romans chapter 5, which is where I come down and where what makes the most sense to me. Um, the fourth really only makes is the only one that makes sense in light of the following clause, until the offspring should come. Because the law continues even now after the offspring has come to restrain sin and to define sin, but it no longer increases sin. So what does that mean? The law increased sin. Romans 5.20 Now the law came to increase the trespass. And, And we see this when we read the Old Testament. The law didn't really restrain sin or make Israel a moral nation. They just got worse and worse. And we also know this to be true experientially. Uh, the first thing we do when someone says, don't look, is look. A new rule given to children supplies them with just a new creative way to rebel. Oh, thanks, Dad. I never thought of that one before. And personally speaking, a stipulation placed on me causes my uh, you-don't-tell-me-what-to-do heart to start pumping more and more rebellion. The law applied to fallen people doesn't make us better people. It makes us better sinners. 
growing up with my mom would say, well, no snack, it's almost dinner time. Would I walk over to the fridge and grab an apple in her face? Maybe once. <laughs> no, I'd go outside and fruit grew abundantly in the summertime and wet more and I'd eat four apples and some plums as well behind her back. It doesn't make me a better person, it makes me a better sinner. And now I'm not only disobedient, but I'm a liar as well. So why would God's plan of redemption include a law that would only increase transgression? And I think the answer, in part at least, is found in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not see the kingdom of heaven. The law's purpose has always been to teach us that we can't do it on our own. Our our own unrighteousness should drive us to Christ. We're not more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. The purpose of the law is to drive us to despair and a need for Christ. And we need to take care when we understand the purpose of the law in that way. That purpose does not remove the obligation of the law. But uh, that's another sermon and another discussion for probably the near future. Um, So he goes on to say, The Mosaic age was always driving toward the arrival of Christ. He says, Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. In Hebrews 8.13 it says that the new covenant makes the old one obsolete. It says... uh, And again, this is the Old Covenant, which is the Mosaic Covenant, not the Old Testament. But in Hebrews 8, 6, it says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a a ministry that is much more excellent than the Old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Then at the end of the chapter, in Hebrews 8, 13, he says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So really the age of the law was a placeholder. Increased sin to drive us to Christ in hope of the new covenant, which is not a brand new schema of salvation, but it's a fulfillment of promises made to Abraham and and to Eve and to David. Paul continues on, and he's, he's going to teach us that both the mode of transmission of the Old Covenant, as well as the difference between the covenants, the mode of transmission and the difference between them, makes the law subordinate to promise. He says in, in the latter half of verse 19, And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary, Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. That's a (laughs) head-scratcher. Nearly everybody I read or listened to commented on how difficult that is. They say it's probably one of the hardest sections in Paul. Um, One commentator kind of jested, there's as many theories on these these verses as there were years between Abraham and Moses. That, That is 430 I'll add the 431st here. Uh, But I I believe Paul here is writing in legal terms. 
Um, and to understand what he means by the by angels, I first want to consider what he means by the intermediary, and then we'll discuss the angels. Um, so the intermediary here is almost certainly Moses. It's literally, in the Greek, it's delivered by the hand of an intermediary. So that perhaps evokes the idea of, of Moses' hands carrying the, the tablets down the mountain. And the most simple conclusion here that most everybody agrees on is that the law is inferior because the promise was immediate. The promise to Abraham was immediate. That is, it was directly from God to Abraham, while the law was mediated. It was from God through Moses to the people of Israel. But I think there's more here to it than that. He, he says in verse 20, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So it implies more than one what? More than one covenanting party. If two companies are entering into a contract together, they might hire an intermediary, someone to go between them to make sure everything's on the up and up, everything's fair and legal. There's someone to be a go-between. Or, I think this works, maybe a stretch, but we could call the minister... At a wedding, an intermediary. You have two covenanting parties. He, he officiates between the two covenanting parties. So we know this for certain, that if there's an intermediary involved, involved there must be two parties. Now, now, what's the significance of two parties? Two parties means both sides have covenant obligations. In that sense, it's almost contractual. It's um, conditional. So when Moses came off the mountain, he, he sprinkled the people with blood, which signified that if they didn't keep the covenant vows, their blood was on their own head. And the people took the covenant vow and they said that they would keep all the words of this law. So they're obligated to that covenantally. They're obligated to that. God's law covenant with Israel was more contractual and conditional in nature than the promise with Abraham. Now contrast that with the promise with Abraham, where God alone passes through the split carcasses and says, Thus be it done to me if I don't fulfill my promise. So I think that's what Paul's saying by saying, but God is one. God's oneness is his unity, his simplicity, his aseity. He is sufficient in himself to affect all he's decreed. His, his promises are sure, and he alone will keep his promises. They will come to pass. So a promise is better than a contractual agreement. Now, what do we make of, of angels? This through angels thing um, and this is kind of my opinion and I tell you that because I was telling Kelly if I'm right then the Holy Spirit ins- you know, illumined me but if I'm wrong then I- I'm wrong and it's important because I didn't read this idea anywhere else not that I, nobody else has ever had it but if nobody else in church history has had it before um, there's a decent chance I'm missing something but this is, makes sense to me and scriptures are ultimate authority so what I make of the angels, um, I, I mentioned a wedding earlier. And, and what else do you have to have at a wedding besides the, the, the officiator and, and the two people co- covenanting? You have to have witnesses. If you read the, the text of Exodus, you see 
God appears to be talking to directly to Moses. He doesn't pass it through angels to Moses. But the angels seem to be more of an observing party. And we read elsewhere, like in Deuteronomy, that there were angels present. Um, it says in, in 33.2, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. And he came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. The presence of angels is also alluded to in the New Testament. So angels were present, but their role seemed to be more observational and less of a uh, direct link in the chain of transmission. So my theory is that they served as witnesses in the covenant between God and Israel, of which Moses was the intermediary. You're welcome to tell me how I'm missing something after. Uh, but Paul's, I think Paul's implicit question to his readers here is, is fairly clear. Which covenant do you want to be under? The, the one where an intermediary sprinkled the participants with blood and said, your blood is on your own head if you don't keep the vows? Or the one where God covenanted and took all of the obligations upon himself? The choice is obvious. And to go from one to the other is to go from from the promised land back to Egypt, back to slavery. Now Paul goes on here and he predicts their next question, of course. If the purpose of the law is to increase transgression, wouldn't that make the law contrary to the promise? In verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So is the law somehow an enemy of the promise? Certainly not, he says. May it never be. And his answer here basically summed up is, if they serve the same purpose, then yes, they might be rival covenants, but they don't serve the same purpose. If a law was given that could give righteousness in life, like the promise to Abraham did, then they would be contrary. Then there would be two ways of obtaining life, one through promise, one through law. But the law is not a means, nor was it ever meant to be a means of obtaining life. In fact, the law brings death. Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians 3 calls the the, um, covenant with Moses the ministry of death carved in letters in stone. In Romans 8.2, he says that the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So the law is contrary to promise if you use it like the Judaizers did. If you use it to obtain life and righteousness, then they're then they are a contrary. So Paul's kind of turned the tables on him here. He says, if you make the law a means of obtaining justification and eternal life, then they are contrary. But, but you make them to be contrary. He contrasts in verse 22. He says, but, which is the strongest... Um, conjunction of contrast in the Greek Allah but the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe 
So God, by his word, particularly the word of the law, has announced the universal bondage of men to sin. He, he's imprisoned or, or shut up or consigned all men, um, not to life and righteousness, as our culture would have us to believe, but to guilt, to sin, and to death. It's really inescapable. In Romans 11:32, he says, For God has consigned, it's the same word, consigned, imprisoned. He's consigned all to disobedience. That's striking. God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. In Romans, the context is all um, Jews and Gentiles. And here, the context is all men. And we sometimes wonder, kind of like Sunday school this morning, why sin? Why did God allow sin into the world? Or if, if, like we do, we're convinced that God's utter sovereignty includes his complete, unhindered, libertarian free will and decree, why did God ordain and decree sin? And here's the answer. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who work for it, for those who believe. That's how God has ordained salvation. So without sin in the world, we wouldn't know the fullness of God's character and his attributes. If God was going to reveal himself, I think he's going to do it as he is. I think that God has given us a comprehensive revelation of himself. Notice, comprehensive, not exhaustive. I think eternity will be filled with learning more and more about God. But God has revealed himself to us in the scriptures as he is. So what he is really is gracious and merciful. We wouldn't know the attributes of God's grace, the most glorious attribute we celebrate, God's grace. We wouldn't know that if sin had never entered into the world. If we could merit God's favor, we wouldn't know his grace. If we weren't under a just sentence of punishment, we would not know about his mercy. God has designed his world and his dramatic story of history to make known the riches of the glory of his wisdom. In Ephesians 3, 9 through 11, Paul says that he was tasked to preach the gospel so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he recognized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So it's God's eternal plan that we would turn away from ourselves and look toward Him, toward His grace. That, that's what brings Him glory. If we didn't need Him, we could boast in ourselves. We could glory in our own wisdom, but He, in His perfect wisdom, has ordained the greatest good, which is His greatest glory. So He says, therefore, that the, the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Faith in reliance on God's promises is uh, fulfilled in Christ, and believing in that is what gives God the most glory. So I think Paul's main thesis in verses 19 through 22 is that the law was added to increase sin so that we would turn away from ourselves and in faith turn toward his gracious promise 
as fulfilled in Jesus. Say that again. I think that's his main point. That the law was added to increase sin so that we would turn from ourselves and in faith turn toward his gracious promise as fulfilled in Jesus. A few points of theology, doctrine, and application here, and then we'll close. Um, First of all, God's sovereignty is really on display here in his plan of redemption in this passage. Uh, If you're going to buy into Paul's argument, you have to believe in God's complete sovereignty, even in places where that's uncomfortable. He says God brought in the law to increase sin on purpose. And he says God imprisoned everyone under sin. Now, I think the natural man would be inclined to defend God against such a statement. If someone accuses God of wrongdoing because of sin and evil in the world, what do we say to them? No, that's not. God had nothing to do with that. Or are we going to say, as the psalmist does in Psalm 115, that our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He has decreed whatsoever comes to pass for the purpose of his good pleasure and for his glory. And really, truly, how comforting is that? It's a horrifying notion to think that God is out of control of anything, including sin. Nothing is outside of God's control. As our one of our favorite sayings from Brother Sproul, if one maverick mo- molecule is outside his control, we have no hope. It's also comforting to know that his plan of salvation leads us not into bondage to earn the favor of this slave master, um, but instead his plan of salvation is, is plainly good. It leads us to unmerited favor, to grace. It leads us to Christ. And if we're Christ, then we're heirs according to God's promise to Abraham. These are good things. These are better things than we can imagine. I think the best scheme of salvation I could have imagined is that and this is what every world religion does, is that we earn our favor and our way toward God. God has this glorious plan called grace. The second point of application is that we should note that one purpose, not that word one, one purpose of the law, the reason the law was added, was to consign all to transgression. So this is a conversation about justification before God so when when making a sword or something like, like that a knife when the blacksmith creates the knife and shapes it and forges it then he has to harden the steel so he takes it and heats it up red hot and sticks it in oil or water or something and it cools really fast and it gets really really hard but if you go swinging that sword around hitting stuff it's going to shatter it'll break in half it's so brittle it's that hard so they have to temper the steel they have to heat it up to the right temperature for the right amount of time and then it's both hard and flexible and it's strong it can hold up to the abuse of of hitting things and striking things with it I think sometimes Christians kind of swing the hardened sword of Galatians 3 at every topic concerning law and if we're not careful we, we could snap it So we need to be careful to temper our understanding of the law by understanding the whole counsel of God. 
Uh, Calvin opens up his commentary on this section by saying that the law has manifold uses, but Paul consigns himself to that which bears on his present subject. He did not propose to inquire in how many ways the law is of advantage to men. It is necessary to put readers on their guard for this point, for very many, I find, have fallen into the mistake of acknowledging no other advantage belonging to the law but what is expressed in this passage. Paul himself elsewhere speaks of the precepts of the law as profitable for doctrine and exhortation, 2 Timothy 3.16. So this is a wonderful and probably the backbone of our teaching on the law, but we have to understand there are many purposes in God's plan for the law, and we definitely will get into that more in the coming weeks. On the third reason, or the third... um, application here is that we should live in the freedom of the promise of Christ. Romans 7 is an experiential way of expressing these truths. Romans 7, 4 through 6. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law We're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So we can really fight the good fight of of Romans 7 in in the context knowing that we have the spirit of Romans 8. The law of the Spirit of life set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So know that you are free in Christ. You're no longer imprisoned under sin. In Christ you do have life. You have righteousness. You you have a new ability by the power of the Holy Spirit to obey. You're a new man and God's law has been written on your heart if you believe in Christ. And that's really what makes this whole idea of returning to the law as a means of obtaining life so foolish. If we already have life and freedom in Christ, uh, that's foolishness. God has brought us up again out of the house of bondage, and he's bringing us into the promised homeland. So we must believe that he will do what he's promised, and and don't be like the, the people going into the promised land and say, well, let's turn back. Let's let's elect a new leader, and let's go back to become slaves again. Do not go back. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The law was added to increase sin so that we would turn away from ourselves and in faith turn toward the gracious promises of God in Christ Jesus. Amen.